Hello and welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Claire Fletcher from the Walkleys. Today's podcast is about the power of great investigative journalism. It can change lives and laws, but it's work that takes a lot of time, investment and skill from journalists. And those are three things that are under more pressure than ever in today's media. You'll hear how a new culture is emerging to support this work, about collaborative projects and new funding sources. This discussion was presented by the Walkley Foundation and RMIT in Melbourne on the 4th of September 2018. You'll hear from our special guest, Robert Rosenthal, an award-winning American journalist and editor who went on to run the non-profit Centre for Investigative Reporting. We were lucky to have the support of the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund to bring Robert to Australia. Thanks also to Private Media for their support on this event. Robert shares his experiences of how non-profit newsrooms are working in the US. He's joined by a panel of journalists, including Sushi Das, Stephen Drill, and Gold Walkley winner Michael Bachelard, who moderates. But first, here's Walkley Foundation Chief Executive Louisa Graham. The discussion tonight about truth and quality journalism has never been more important. But quality journalism, particularly the investigative kind, is bloody expensive. So tonight you'll hear from some of the best about what goes into making investigative journalism, fact-checking it, and putting it out into the world. And we'll also hear about what the future solutions might be to making sure newsrooms have the support to keep that work going. To lead the conversation, please welcome our participating moderator, none other than the reigning Gold Walkley winner, and I'm pleased to say a new addition to the Walkley Judging Board, Michael Bachelard. I just have to say a little bit more about Michael, because besides winning the Gold Walkley, he's editor of the Age Investigations Unit and the foreign editor of Fairfax Media. And he began his career in 1990 at the Canberra Times before moving to Melbourne in 1997, He's actually won four Walkley Awards and has written two books, The Great Land Grab and Behind the Exclusive Brethren. So please welcome uh, Michael and our panel. And I too would like to welcome the panel. I'll get them to introduce themselves and go through their own CVs. But to my left left is Stephen Drill from the Herald Sun. Sushi Das, now at RMIT ABC Fact Check and Robert Rosenthal, who is from the Centre for Investigative Reporting in the US. So what I thought I'd do is initially just get everybody to say what they thought the future of investigative journalism was. Bright, not bright. And the great kind of question for our industry is not so much what we would all like to do, but what we can all afford to do. So what the economic model of (coughs) investigative journalism uh, is going forward. And then I think we're going to have a discussion within the panel. But I'll start with Stephen. What is your view of the future of investment journalism in Australia? Do you, are you optimistic about it? There's a lot of pessimism around, and if so, how do we pay for it? I think, Michael, we reap what we sow in a lot of ways because if we think that investment journalism will fall away and we won't have enough money to fight defamation cases, which are expensive and our defamation laws are ridiculous compared to the US, as Robert will probably point out later on, We'll, it will fall over. But if we are willing to fight for it, if we are willing to make it important and actually have you know, strong companies and strong ways of actually funding this, then we'll have a go at it. But it's not going to be easy. We're not going to walk out and do it straight away. We're really going to make sure that we, we make a good argument for it and we keep producing good journalism that makes change. So in your view, it's the argument for it, the, the fact that people will buy it, that it's a commercial proposition in other words? 
there's a suite of different options in Australia. We've got the ABC, which is obviously a yeah, fantastic organisation, which we, we all do pay for and we all do support, and we've got other organisations. But I think we need to get people to actually start paying for journalism like they used to do. I mean, everyone used to buy a newspaper and those subscriptions were would fund journalism and we also had a different business model where we had a lot of classified advertising that also helped pay for a lot of the work we do, a lot of the travel we do and again some of the legal bills that, that come up when you are holding power for people to account. Sushi, uh, you've recently, not that recently now, made the leap from, from a big journalism factory in the age to another way of doing journalism or another fact-checking which is essentially one of the key tools of journalism. Are you optimistic about the future? Yes, I am, overall, I am. The question, does public interest journalism have a future in Australia, and if so, under which model? Well, I actually don't know the answer to those questions, and if anyone does, do let me know. But I just want to point out, a number of things have happened sort of roughly around the same time, okay? So we've had the breakdown in the traditional business model. We've got new technologies which are emerging and changing really fast. We've got disinformation and misinformation being spread faster than it's ever been spread before. And at the same time, we've got a certain level of you know, breakdown of trust in some platforms. The tectonic plates in the media industry are shifting, and they've been shifting for some time, and we don't know what the new landscape is going to look like. But we can see some signs, some green shoots, um, um, and in some cases more than just green shoots, of public interest journalism emerging in very different business models and of course there's no reason why there has to be just one business model there are many different models I just briefly want to um, just sort of explain um, for example RMIT ABC Fact Check is a collaboration between the national broadcaster and a university that has a very strong media and communications uh, school so we've got a team of experienced journalists who with the support of the university interns check the accuracy of claims made by politicians and other public figures who are involved in public debate. The journalism is forensic, it's data-driven, and it takes time. We provide verdicts for all our claims and we publish across all the ABC platforms, so that's TV, website, radio, and social media. And our funding comes from the National Broadcaster and RMIT. Universities, if they're responsible for research and education, uh, the Fact Check Unit is a neat fit with the university and I'm not actually aware of any other model where you've got the national broadcaster and a university coming together like this in Australia or anywhere else in the world for that matter actually. So this is a unique Australian business model and, and so far it's working, okay? So, and those are the reasons why I feel good about it because I think it's not over yet, we're just changing the way we're doing things and the thirst for good journalism is still there <coughs> and I'm confident that it will always be there because we need scrutinisers and I think that, you know, the way we're doing it, RMIT ABC Fact Check is one way of doing it. So we've got four full-time fact checkers in Melbourne, another one in Sydney, we've got two chief fact checkers who check the fact checkers. And we've got a director, and we've got an online editor, and we've got a creative producer, and we have a whole bunch of interns who support us as well. You do great work, but it's quite small compared to, say, a traditional newsroom. And uh, do you, there must be a lot of things that you would like to fact-check that you don't have the resources to do. Uh, not yet. But when we do do our stuff, we 
we publish through the ABC. So we have a very big audience. So we might be small, but we do reach a lot of people. And we're essentially a startup. We've only been going since mid last year. You, some of you might remember our first iteration was ABC Fact Check. And then when that was defunded, we then re-emerged as RMIT ABC Fact Check. So essentially in our new guys, we've only been around since middle of last year. So yeah, I think we're okay so far. And actually fact-checking as a distinct art or craft is, is one of the kind of dividends of the, of the new era, is that that's kind of been separated from, to some extent, the big journalism factories, or separated within them. You know, a number of the US papers have got fact-check units. Yes. And become kind of a, a new thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's how fact-checking essentially basically started in the States and started within the big newspapers and now it's sort of branched off into entities by themselves who work in collaboration with other organisations or find some other way of funding themselves so they can get their work out there. But it's about being imaginative and coming up with new ways of doing it because there's certainly no shortage of people demanding that kind of journalism. And, of course, fact-checking you know, employs all the same skills that investor journalism does. So I'll turn to Robert now. Robert was a former highly credentialed uh, investigative reporter and editor, edited the Philadelphia Inquirer for many years, and then found himself, as many mid-career journalists do, looking for a job. And he found one. In fact, he more or less invented one. I'll let him tell the story. And, and along the way, to sort of suggest perhaps one future for investigative journalism. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what I did was born from desperation, and I think in the States, the collapse of journalism, especially newspapers, or some of the legacy models, I think maybe a little bit ahead of what's happened here. So I basically have done everything you could do in newspapers. I started as a copy boy at the New York Times, and ended up being the editor of a big paper called the Philadelphia Inquirer, as you just heard, and I got fired. But what happened for me was that I really saw the lack of alignment between what I call the creative side, the journalist, the business side, which wanted more and more revenue and the lack of technology, and basically created a new model for investigative reporting. And the advantage we have in the States is that under the tax laws, people can give money to a nonprofit journalism organization and get a tax deduction. And when I came to the Center for Investigative Reporting 11 years ago, we had six people. And you talk about doing things differently. We do it differently. And today, we have over 70 people. And it's really a multi-platform, deeply fact-based, high-impact social justice news organization. This year, we had a, an Oscar-nominated short doc called Heroin. Some of you may have seen it about the opioid epidemic in the States and, and three women. And we had a Pulitzer Prize finalist for another investigation. But the key thing, I think, the real issue, and I can get into all kinds of detail about how we do what we do, and I'd probably bore you, but for me, quality journalism is absolutely essential in a democracy, and we're at a moment globally where journalists have to be supported in any way you can do it to really stand up to the potential of tremendous abuses we're seeing. There's a reason Trump calls journalists, the enemy of the people. It's right out of the autocrat's playbook. It's historic, and you need to know history to understand that the first people the worst governments go after forever are people who stand up to them, whether it's somebody in the town square, a guy who rode on horseback delivering a one-sheet piece of news that took two weeks to cross part of the United States or Australia. And they eliminate journalists. They eliminate people who stand up to them. And 
I think it's not too far-fetched to really begin to think about that. And again, in the States, what's happened in the last 10 years, I probably raised close to $80 million for journalism. And we do journalism that makes a difference. And I, I know here in Australia, there's a lot of great journalism being done. You also face monopoly ownership that really, I think, is a threat to everyone. And I think it's absolutely essential that new models have to be created here. And the crucial element of that, I think, will be collaborations, which I think are not part of what anybody thinks they want to do in media here, in news organizations. And I can tell you, when I started at CIR 11 years ago, nobody wanted to do it. Today, everybody does it. From the biggest news organizations in the United States, from the Washington Post to New York Times, Frontline, they work with organizations like ours because collaboration leads to much more powerful journalism. It saves everybody money. It's a pain in the ass, but if it's a great story, people, journalists, want to do it. So I guess I'm here, part of my trip, and I want to thank the Walkley Foundation for inviting me, is to really talk about this. And I'm not pessimistic. I think it really, it's a, more about saying, not thinking about why you can't do it, it's a matter of saying we have to do it. So, you know, I really believe that. The most difficult thing I've done in my career was over the last 10 years. Foreign correspondent, I've been in wars, I've been a prisoner in dungeons in Africa. But the most difficult thing I did was what I did the last 10 years. And really it came out of a disaster in my own life where I was fired from one of the best jobs in the United States, from one of the biggest newspaper companies in the United States because I really had huge conflicts with corporate about the role of journalism in a democracy. And when it's driven by profit, and only the number one question is revenue, it is not gonna succeed. So I don't believe that investigative reporting can make money, because in any newsroom, it's something that's almost pushed in a corner. It's the most crucial element in terms of protecting and serving the public's interest. But really, new models are gonna have to be created. And people, in the United States now, the amount of money that's been given to nonprofit journalism in the last 10 years from American foundations and individuals has probably gone up 10,000%. Not everybody believes in what we do, but the people who do really understand it's crucial in a democracy and it's one of the pillars. And in the United States right now, the major obstacle, besides Robert Mueller, is the press. You know, the legislative has been corrupted and taken over. The judiciary is being changed. Law enforcement is being co-opted, except for the parts of the Justice Department. But the press in the United States is really being targeted, and it's incredibly divisive. So I come from that philosophical point of view, and I realize the complications here are much greater than the United States has. But it's really important that the public understands the role of the press in a democracy, and especially investigative reporting. And it's a marketing, it's an education process. People sort of take it for granted. Politics obviously get involved, point of view get involved. But I think it's important for the things you're doing, everyone's doing here, to really understand that it's crucial and there will be huge obstacle. I'm not that familiar with the defamation laws here, but I understand that it's a huge challenge. But this messaging really sort of, I believe, has to go out. And in the United States right now, we have a midterm election in two months, and if the Republicans control the House and the Senate, God knows what's gonna happen in the United States and the rest of the world. So, but the activization of people, in great part because of a lot of the stuff that's been reported in the United States by the press, 
is huge as well as the activation on the other side. So it's going to be one of the most important elections the United States has ever had. Thanks, Robert. I, I wanted to, which is not to diminish the importance of it for the whole world, because I think the kind of trends we're seeing in the US in terms of leadership approach to the media and so on, we're also seeing flowing over into other countries, the Philippines, Cambodia, Turkey, and so on. So yes, we'll all be watching the midterms. I just wanted to speak on my own part, since I'm the participating chair, uh, about investigative journalism at the age. And it's interesting that, that Robert says that investigative journalism is pushed into the corner in, in a big newsroom. And that is not my experience at the age. In fact, when we lost sort of a quarter of our staff uh, a year ago in yet another redundancy round, the investigative team didn't lose anyone. In fact, we were all encouraged very much to stay because the model of the economic model the age has increasingly adopted is the, an attempt to attract subscribers, people who will pay voluntarily for a product that they can get free in a number of ways. And to do so, we feel that we need to offer a product that you can't get elsewhere, and that is a bespoke, high-value product that you're willing to pay for. And that clearly is an experiment. As Robert says, we are probably 10, 15 years behind the US in terms of the adoption of technologies that will kind of, that will uh, even further challenge our business model. But there are differences also with the US and there is a kind of a, a, a resolute experiment going on at the age at the moment about providing high quality investigative journalism to people who are willing to subscribe. I hope it works actually, because it's a big change uh, in the past we really have been, as Fred Hilmer, our former CEO, once said, content providers for an advertising platform. That's no longer true. The advertising cannot and will not, in the future, I suspect, pay for journalism in the way it, in which it has for, well, as long as we've known newspapers in the way that we know them. So we've got to find a new model, and we're hoping that that's the way to do it. So that's the world, from my perspective. It's pretty tight and contingent on subscribers, but it's also, you know, there is a glimmer of hope there that we might be able to fund things going forward. So there's so many things in what our panel has said that we could come back to, but I wanted to ask, because a lot of you talked about the importance of journalism in a democracy and the kind of value of journalism. And that, I think everybody on this panel and possibly in this room would agree to, and yet out there in the broader world, it's a profession that is routinely diminished and criticised. Uh, if you ever follow the hashtag, hashtag MSM on Twitter or social media, you'll find out how much people really dislike journalists and think that we're all terrible people and tell lies all the time and don't follow the real story, which is whatever they happen to be obsessed with. <laughs> so how in Australia or globally do we convey our passion for quality and for the importance of journalism in a democracy soon? Well, that's, yeah, a real change. We've always, as journalists, kind of usually just copped it on the chin. You know, some of the Twitter memes about me have been quite entertaining and very well researched and very well produced. Because you actually do get to a point where if people don't like what you're saying, they will, sh they will shoot the messenger. You know, it's a, you know, don't shoot the messenger. That's exactly what they do. And they want to tear down journalists because people, they don't agree with what the journalist has, you know, has found out. But I think the difference now is a lot of journalists, particularly print journalists, who were just a byline in the paper, and I always find it quite funny, you know, 
you hear someone going, oh, I can read this story the other day, it was really great, you know, something happened, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah I actually wrote that, that story. And it's like, my mum, I'm on TV a fair bit more, I'm on radio a lot more, and we go on Sky News regularly to actually back up our story and explain it to people. Because I think when people see who you are, they get a better understanding of where you're coming from, and it's just a lot harder to attack a real person rather than just a byline. But I, I think we really need to make sure that we keep actually being on the front foot and saying why these stories are important. I think people always want to, if you know, they don't, they don't like what we're writing about, they'll try and shoot the messenger. But they also do like the outcomes of, of what happened. You know, we wrote a story about the Country Fire Authority, and they gave they gave their employees cancer. There was about sixty five million dollar report into that and that they actually shut down the train college because solely because of the reports for the inner herald sun now if we don't have that if we don't actually go out and, and sort of tell our message and actually fight for people then i think we're, we're going to lose the battle are we bad at promoting the value of what we do very bad at, at promoting value and i mean i think particularly you know the tabloid papers they, they do have a reputation i'm sure a lot of people have a view of the Herald Sun and a preconceived idea of what it is, but the amount of work that we do to check what goes in the paper and the, the effort and the, the fights that we have with our lawyers and they say that we, even you know, last night we were talking about a story and there was you know, just the, the attention to detail that goes into it is extraordinary, but we just, we, we don't sell ourselves very well, I don't think. Sushi, you're outside the mainstream media now and fact-checking in a way that, that perhaps a journalist might think, well, we should have done that. Are we doing a bad job at saying that we do a good job? Or do we do, just do a bad job? Uh, no, no, no. Look, you're right. We don't have any friends. I worked at the age of 22 years. I've been a journalist for about 25 years. And before that, I was a tax officer in London. And trust me, I didn't have any friends then. <laughs> but, no, what it is is that the media traditionally has never been very good at coming together and having one voice. Which is what I sort of loved about what happened in America recently, where all the newspapers did come together and had their contributors doing their editorials on that one day and speaking with one voice. And we don't do that very often. So I think that's one of the reasons why we're not very good at putting our own case, okay? And we regularly come very low in the, you know, on the trust barometer. And the most recent, the Edelman Trust Barometer 2018 one, just so you know exactly where we stand today, that's a global survey, 28 countries. For the first time, they found that the media is the least trusted institution globally. And they reckon that the demise of confidence in the fourth estate is driven primarily by a significant drop in the trust in platforms. Now, interestingly... Well, that puts us below ISIS then. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the interesting thing was that while trust in platforms has declined, trust in journalism had rebounded. Okay. So I think we have to sort of look at these results and see what's happening here. I think what people are saying is, I mean, apart from the fact that they also found that people just didn't know whether they were reading the truth or not, there's so many um, platforms around now. But the thing is, I think partly if we want people to trust us and understand what we do, we've got to get better at not just selling ourselves, but actually put more good journalism out there. That's the bottom line. We've got to go back to our core business of doing journalism and maybe not putting so much money in other types of stuff that entertainment factor. It's just about going back to the core business. Robert, um, the 
there's a different culture, I think, in the US about around free speech. Certainly, it's much stronger, I think, than it is here. Uh, and around kind of the value of contrarian views and, and so on. Is the situation different for journalists in America? Look what our president can say. Yeah, the First Amendment protects free speech. I don't think it's different. I mean, when you talk about the standards of really high-quality journalism, which I think really we're, what we're hearing also is there's a big difference with media. We're pretty global and universal. And, you know, the facts, checking all the things, documentation. We, I really don't like anonymous sourcing. You know, one of the things we really stay away from at CIR is that, and unless it's really substantiated. But I think the other reason, you know, when we talk about, first of all, I think to your other question about telling our story, we're terrible at it, and there's a lot of arrogance historically with journalists, and you really have to, I call it getting out from behind the curtain and letting people know actually what we do and how difficult it is. And I think people don't understand, and, and I've part of my raising money, and it's something I never thought I'd do, but it was really to do the work other, so other people could do the work, was, you know, I, I would point out to people that there's about three professions globally where people are targeted and killed or imprisoned or hurt or whatever because of their work. You know, if you're in the military, that's part of what you have to face. If you're in law enforcement, journalists are targeted. So people never even think of that in terms of the courage it takes sometimes in, you know, the sentencing this yesterday or today on my body clocks off, is another example of that. But I do think that globally, this messaging has to change. And the other major factor, pretty to me, obviously, is the way leaders speak of journalism or media. And that, I think, has really obviously contributed to this, this issue of, of trust. And at the same time, in the States, you have a, you know, there was a, what we called Trump bump in terms of people supporting nonprofit independent journalism. and the divided newspaper industry really on the one side papers like the Washington Post and New York Times and even the Wall Street Journal really increasing their revenue and their paywall subscriptions because people wanted information they could at least think they could believe. So it's really complicated and it's obviously complicated when journalists and media have always been attacked by leaders and now it's all completely exacerbated by the ability of leaders to literally be publishers. And that's what we're seeing in the States. The most influential and powerful publisher in the world is the American president. Earlier today, uh, there was lunch uh, at which I was able to see Robert and, and hear what he had to say. And I asked him when he goes out. So Robert's model is a philanthropic model. He goes out and asks for money for people to pay for investigative journalism. And I asked him, what's in it for them, for the funders? And your answer was quite revealing, I think. Well, in the States, the people who support independent journalism are not really looking for anything, but they really believe that, as I said earlier, one of the pillars of American democracy is, is the free press. You know, we don't take money to do a specific story. We take money to do investigative reporting, and some funders might be interested broadly in the environment or the oceans, but generally most of our funding comes for what we call general support to do the work. And again, we we do everything from films and we do a huge amount of collaboration. We have a nationally broadcast radio show called Reveal, which is long form narrative radio and podcast. But the funders really believe that pillar needs to be supported. And this happened going on for a long time. It's accelerated in the last few years, but it also was accelerated before President Trump by the fact that so many news organizations lost journalists. 
and there was a real desire to have more information for communities. And again, the model was a lot of collaboration, but what, what do they get out of it? They get out of understanding that information is the most powerful tool really in a society. And that you need to have this kind of challenging of authority and looking into things that aren't exposed otherwise by journalists. So, I mean, that's incredibly heartening, actually, that people, uh, philanthropists, are prepared to pay for the warm, fuzzy feeling of advancing democracy through journalism. I'd be interested to see how that flew here. But it is an education, and I think when people understand history, understand it. But when you really start talking about what happens when information is controlled by the government and you're not challenging it, you know, little lights start going off. Not everybody wants to fund it. It's only a small percentage of American philanthropy goes to it, but millions of the people support it also through public media in the States through membership. That The model is a little different in, this, in the United States. Public media is not funded to a very small level. Most of it's membership supported in communities all around the United States. So there's a related concept of the, this idea that journalism is important in a democracy, and that is and the idea that you're doing it is a social good and that you have the strength to do it. And one of the things that I notice when I tell people that I work for The Age, I'm very proud to work for The Age, and I, I say to people, I work for The Age. And they, and very often I get the response, oh, <laughs> you poor thing. It's like, The Age is dying. And the message we have not put out recently is we're a thriving, important public institution. It's that we're a dying institution. We've been very good at putting out that message. Uh, the Herald Sun News Limited is not as good at putting out that message because it does its redundancies much more quietly than we do. They're very good at that. But they also do it. So so I think that goes to the idea, I guess, of a media that is thriving, that is vital, that is a good part of our democracy. And I personally think that that part of our problem is that kind of, oh, it's sympathetic, but it's also like, well, you, you know, you're really on your last legs. Oh, you've been through that in the US, Robert. <laughs> You know, I led newsrooms that were being eviscerated. It's one of the reasons I ended up getting fired, because I pushed back. But so when you're working in that environment, it's not the journalism that's messed up, in my opinion. It's the business model collapse. So what's again happened in the States with different tax laws, there's been a huge number of people, not huge, but many, many journalists who weren't employed or lost their jobs are now working in the nonprofit public service space. It's not just my organization that has done well. There are many, many others. And we've had people... ProPublica, some of you may have heard of, you know, that was started by one family who made a $30 million three-year commitment. And that's amazing. One philanthropist just did that. We have people who give us over a million dollars a year. So it's, and those are individuals, and then you have foundations whose job it is to give away money. So the energy, I can tell you, in our newsroom and these other nonprofit spaces, and if you, the numbers of people now, it's something called Investigative Reporters and Editors, which is a national group and a global group, you know, the number of people at those meet conventions every year is almost doubled. So it's a very vibrant space, and people, if some of you are journalists, I'm sure, no journalist I know ever started in journalism to make money. You know, you're creative, passionate, maniacal people frequently. And that kind of energy creates a lot of doing it because this woman said, I don't know her name, I'm sorry, you know, she Sushi. feels good, Sushi, no, no, the woman in the film. Right. <laughs> uh, she talked about she feels good about her work, and that's what journalists do, and they do take risks, and part of the success of raising money was really conveying, frequently to people who didn't understand it, the role we play in a democracy, 
and with you know and, and pounding at it. It's not like you know I said earlier today. I think you have ten meetings, you might raise money from two of them, but it's just you know you have to believe in it. Can, can I just add, like you know, just to poke you in the eye a little bit? But when reporters leave newsrooms, journalism inevitably suffers. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean. All over the world, we've seen journalists walking out of newsrooms because the whole thing's getting shrunk. And journalism does suffer. I don't believe the media is dying. Newspapers might be dying, but I don't think journalism is dying. And we've got all sorts of platforms that have started up. Just here in Australia, you've got the Saturday paper, you've got the New Daily. You've got Inside Story, which started at Swinburne. You've got Guardian Australia. You've got the New York Times, which now has an Australian office. You've got Crikey. We didn't have these. So the media, you know, journalism is not dying. Uh, media is not dying generally either. We've got some really crap platforms out there. <laughs> putting a lot of crap out there. But I don't think that the media is dying. And it's not a message I like to sort of push. I just, you know, I just think journalism is just... We're just regrouping in different ways, you know. Not dying, regrouping. Yeah. I think we should make a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> are you dying? Uh, I'm not dying, not this week. Regrouping? No, I'm regrouping. But I think that we've got more than 100,000 subscribers to the Herald Sun just online as well. And there is, you, know, you sell a paper, you've got to print it. I was actually talking to Mark Horvall, the publisher of The Age today, and we're talking about how... The Age and the Herald Sun now, they actually print at the same spot. They both go on the same trucks and the savings in print and ink and also on diesel. Now, these are things that are costs to actually getting the journalism out there. Online, we don't have those costs. So I think if we... Yes, there are different challenges and there are different revenue streams that are there and we've just got to keep changing the way and keep fighting for journalism so it, it continues because I think people still want media. I mean, clearly everyone here is here tonight because they're concerned about it. But I think people want to know information. They want someone going out there and holding people to account and actually fighting power and making sure that what people, when they make those claims, whether they're actually, you know, whether they're true. I can't let a uh, discussion about investigative journalism go without raising the question of, of the legal situation in Australia. Stephen's talked about defamation law. I could talk at great length about defamation law. That's one thing. There's also the idea of a culture of free speech, which we've touched on, which is not, I think, as strong here. Our FOI laws are terrible and routinely trampled by governments. When I talk about the culture, there is no obligation or even a cultural or felt obligation by politicians or public figures to say anything at all or to answer questions, and a very little shame on them when they fail to. So it's, you know, I think there are, there are kind of some uphill battles here in Australia. So I'd like to get the panel to reflect. Robert, I don't expect you to speak with any expertise about the Australian scene, yeah. but perhaps talk about the preconditions of doing good, strong investigative journalism in America, which sometimes to us looks like a bit of a nirvana of free speech, you know, relatively, by our standards, gentle defamation laws and a culture of disclosure. Well, you know, again, the standards, I think, are probably, in terms of accuracy, fairness, facts, substantiation with documents or on the record information. Uh, and I'm not that familiar with your defamation laws, but malice in the States, for example, if someone sues you, you have to prove that it was intentional, that you're, whatever you're saying, if you're making allegations that it was intentional 
that you were saying something that you know was false. And at least in my experience in the things that I wrote and reported, I mean, to know, to prove you knew something was false is pretty big an uphill climb. So, sorry, the, the plaintiff, the, the person who's complaining yeah. about you has to make that, has to prove. That, that you, you were that publishing you, something you knew was false. That's a hell of a boom. <laughs> Here, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so, all I have to prove is you know, that hurt feelings. And <laughs> so the rest of the proof is So, on. for example, you have four or five people saying X and Y about someone on the record, and it may not be substantiated through documentation or emails or whatever or your research, but you have, and you may believe the four or five people who are telling the same story. And you can report it that these are, this is what they said. And someone sues you and said, well, you knew it was false. I didn't know it was false. They all told me that. Now, you would obviously go to the person they're talking about. But it is different. But there, the legal action, one of the things that's happened in the States, though, that in a different way, that the chilling effect has been on sources. Because the Obama administration, believe it or not, went more after sources than any previous in the history of the United States. People who were giving the information, who were frequently the most heroic in coming forward. And what they would do is to ask the journalists to disclose their sources. And journalistic ethos in the States is you don't do that. So journalists then would go to jail a couple of times because of that. So the chilling effect really became in a different way from the government going after journalists wanting sources. So if you're in the federal government in the States, you have to sign a loyalty oath saying you're not going to disclose information. So again, we talk about what journalists do, but frequently the sources or the people who come forward are even more courageous than what the journalists have to do. Absolutely. That's certainly the case here as well. Um, legal and cultural bedrock for journalism in Australia? Speaking as someone who's been charged by the police and taken down, walked past the cells at the Preston Police Station because they wanted my source, I can say that yeah, they, there is a concern about defamation laws here and also freedom of speech because there are very little defences that you have when someone comes after you. And these cases, even if they don't get to court, they cost a lot of money. We had one case where it was quite successful. We won. The, the person who accused us spent $70,000 and we knew exactly what was on his bookshelf and he actually walked away from the case. Now that's uh, a very unusual, but it still costs us about 50 grand to actually defend that case. So there's a lot of barriers to journalism and one thing that you know, we need to work out, there has been reforms to defamation laws, but there needs to be a further review to actually make it fairer so more people can speak out. Sushi? I agree, there's few defences when people come after you. In my experience, there was one occasion where I was being forced to you know, reveal my sources and on that occasion the uh, company that was chasing me actually dropped that action eventually and it wasn't until years later that I found out it was a subcontracted company of CityLink that was coming after me for my sources and I didn't find out until years later that it was actually the CEO of CityLink who had gone to that company and said drop that lawsuit. And they, the reason why he did that was because he thought it was just bad PR for CityLink to be chasing a journalist. So I got off on that occasion, but when people do come after you, it's ugly because there isn't a great deal. And it's incredibly expensive as well. And certainly, you know, we need to have some changes here, no doubt. Just quickly add that one of the advantages in the States is that First Amendment lawyers, frequently for us, are pro bono. And in some of the biggest American law firms have policies where their new lawyers who are coming in on, as partners have to do 
pro bono work for nonprofits, especially First Amendment lawyers. So there's a whole culture again of defending that and standing up to issues. So that's a huge benefit. And like nearly every story we do goes to you know, legal review as well. I mean, there's a lot of bulletproofing of everything. And lawyers don't tell you, they tell you about risk. They say, don't publish that. They won't say that. It's, that's the editor's decision and the reporter's, but they really let you know about the potential vulnerability you have when you're publishing something. Stephen, your lawyers work pro bono? No, they buy me lots of drinks, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we don't get much free lawyering either. Well, regrettably, that's all we have time for. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I want to thank Stephen, Sushi, and Robert. I particularly want to thank the Walkleys who really are a great institution and if we want to lift the quality of the kind of the warm and fuzzies that people get about journalism in general, you know, the Walkleys which focuses on the best journalism in the country uh, every year is, is a really good example of how to do that. And I also want to thank all of you for coming, for listening and for being such an attentive audience. So thank you very much. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe to be the first to learn about new episodes, events and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Kevin Suarez with help from the 2SER studios in Sydney, Australia. Catch you next time. 